Today's guest is Sebastian Malaby. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, More Money Than God, Hedge Funds and the Making of a New Elite. He is also the contributing columnist for the Washington Post, and his writings has also appeared in the Atlantic and the Financial Times. Sebastian, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Um, could you give audience a little bit of a background on how you got started in terms of your interest in writing um, the More Money Than God book? Well, there were a couple of things, really. Uh, you know, one is that for an investigative writer, um, hedge funds in the sort of 2007, 2008 time period when I got going were the secretive part of finance. And, um, you know, it just was a challenge to find out something about this rather um, obscure and veiled part of the financial industry. And the other thing was that I had a, a kind of contrarian um, instinct about it, at least contrarian in terms of what most people in the public thought. You know, the classic view of hedge funds following the collapse of long-term capital management in 1998 had been that hedge funds were the extreme end of crazy risk-taking finance. But as I thought about it, you know, it seemed like the opposite was more the case, that um, if you wanted a resilient financial system, you needed contrarian traders who didn't just dump, jump on the bad wagon, but actually took the other side of popular bets. Uh, and therefore, this idea that the financial system as a whole would be made more stable by these risk-taking instruments, uh, that was something I wanted to kind of communicate to the public at large. Got it. And I know that in your book, you talk, um, there's a lot of different characters and very interesting characters in your book. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got access to these, some of these uh, individuals. Well, you know, I've done several books and um, I'm now writing my sixth one, which is about venture capital and uh, poses some of the same issues of how do you get access to people who are very busy and not really particularly incentivized to, to communicate with journalists. And I mean, the answer is you've got to build your credibility uh, by demonstrating that you're worth people's time. And so uh, the typical approach is that, that I that I find works is, is you start off um, by approaching people at the start of the industry. In the hedge fund case, these are people who had retired from trading. They therefore no longer had proprietary secrets. They did have more time on their hands because they were retired. I did prodigious amounts of research before I went to see them. So I knew absolutely everything that had been written um, about them before I showed up. Um, uh, we tended to get along pretty well because when somebody does that much homework, it tends to impress the other person and, and okay, so this guy's taking me seriously, that's good. And uh, so I would kind of go see these early figures in the industry. And then when I gained their trust by earning it, by doing the work, they would then, in some cases, recommend that their protégés um, should talk to me as well. And I got handed along from one generation to the next by, at each stage, demonstrating to people that I was serious and that I did my homework and that I was smart enough to understand what they were up to. Got it. And talking about early figures, uh, I, as I started reading your book, you know, the earlier chapters talked about um, Alfred Winslow Jones and, uh, and about his success. 
can you tell us a, a, a story about, um, you know, Alfred Winslow and how you went about researching him and what made him so successful? Well, he was an extraordinary character in the sense that his background was so unexpected, right? He was um, somebody who had uh, drifted around after graduation. He had joined the State Department for the sake of adventure, been sent to Berlin in the early 1930s when Nazism was just on the rise, had married a beautiful anti-Nazi activist uh, who I think married him basically because she needed a new husband having ditched the two previous ones. Um, and this woman was so beautiful that she could, you know, get away into a, a smart London hotel with nothing but a cardboard box as her as her baggage. Uh, and so Jones fell in love with her, and uh, she was a she was a left wing anti Nazi activist, you know, operating for an outfit called the the Leninist Organization. And so there were various funny State Department cables I found wondering if Alfred Winslow Jones was himself a communist. And uh, so it was just, you know, for the father of hyper-capitalist hedge funds to find somebody who was involved in the Leninist organization through this uh, romantic uh, affiliation in Germany was, was kind of a funny story. And so I, 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 got, a, I got very, uh, I had a lot of fun investigating his background and he founded the first hedge fund. Uh, in 1949, when he was already 49 years old, so there was a big backstory to him, and I, I uncovered this back backstory basically by um, finding people who were still around who had worked for him, and then they passed me along to um, his daughter, um, who by this point was a um, uh, sort of you know 60 or 70 year old woman living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I got to know the Jones family, and it turned out they had some family archives. And so they gave me things like the prospectus that Jones wrote, explaining his methodology to his uh, limited partners. And so I really penetrated this early hedge fund, which was not very much understood before, and could show how the basic ideas of hedge funds, that you can go long and short, and once you've gone long and short, you've hedged out some of the beta risk in the market. So then it's safe to leverage yourself up. Um, and so this combination of uh, long short trading with leverage was sort of speculative means for conservative ends. That's what A.W. Jones called it. Got it. And you talked about, you know, uh, limited partners. Um, reading those perspectives, uh, did you get a sense of how he went about raising money from these limited partners? Did he did he come from a, a family that had money already, or how did he? Did you get a sense of how do you uh, raise that early capital for his hedge fund? Well, he didn't have a lot of money himself when he began, and in fact, that is why he began. He had uh, done a PhD in sociology after being kicked out of the State Department for marrying a communist. Um, and uh, and had developed a sort of life as a public intellectual, which he rather liked. But um, he then uh, wanted to make some money, and that's why he launched this investment um, adventure. So he didn't have money himself, but he did know people in New York who had money, and he was an impressive intellectual character, and he persuaded a, a lot of well, not, actually, it didn't have to be a lot because it was a relatively small hedge fund. 
but you know he persuaded enough people with enough private savings to back him that he could launch his his fund got it and and i think as i'm working through your book um you know that that chapter was the early chapter and chapter three had a was very interesting to me especially talking about um commodities corporation and very interesting people like Paul Samuelson, Michael Marcus, Bruce Kovner. Could you uh, tell us some stories about uh, Paul Samuelson and perhaps even Michael Marcus and Bruce Kovner? Sure. I mean, it's funny, you're, you're, you're skipping over chapter two, which is uh, Michael Steinhardt, which I always think is a, a fun character too, particularly when he said to somebody uh, who had screwed up some trade and said he wanted to kill himself. Uh, Steinhardt said to him, sure, can I wash? Um, but but anyway, they, we'll, we'll leave Steinhardt aside. And, and you're right, chapter three is about Commodities Corporation, which is sort of interesting because it was, um, to me at least, before I began the project, not a well-known name. But it turns out that the Nobel Prize winner, Paul Samuelson, uh, put money uh, into this uh, trading operation. Um, and um, people who later became very important in the sort of macro trading world. So Bruce Kovner is one, Paul Tudor-Jones, um, uh, Lewis Bacon, who set up more capital. You know, in Kovner's case, he actually worked for Commodities Corporation and the other two cases, Paul Tudor-Jones um, uh, and uh, Lewis Bacon, they were seeded by uh, Commodities Corporation. It was really the origin of an attempt to have systematic trading where you, um, sort of, you know, figured out computerized signals um, that uh, could help you predict the market. It was big on um, uh, charts and, 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 and uh, patterns in markets. Uh, and it was focused, as the name suggests, on commodities. And one of the things that emerges as you look at the hedge fund history and sort of trace it through is the way that it was trading in commodities futures that um, prepared the way for people to understand um, financial futures in, in both currencies and interest rates when those became common um, from around the mid-70s. Uh, and so um, what later became known as macro trading um, grew out of this old tradition of trading in cotton and trading in uh, metals and, and, and so forth. And one thing interesting is that from my understanding, Paul Samuelson believed in the theory of efficient market hypothesis, um, which says there's really no way to beat the market. But then he invests money into Commodities Corporation, which which is, seems interesting. Yes, well, interesting or maybe just plain contradictory. Um, <laughs> he obviously, I mean, I think I joke in the book, and it's basically true that he took the you know, winnings from his Nobel Prize that said, you know, that was linked to his work on the efficiency of markets. And he, he, he bet the winnings on the inefficiency of markets by putting it into commodities corporations. So um, that was a bit of a contradiction. It's one of the funny stories that happened after I uh, published the book is that um, I know uh, the former Treasury Secretary, uh, Larry Summers, a bit. And uh, he was, uh, he read the book and he was saying to me how he knew of Commodities Corporation a long time ago because um, his, uh, his uncle, who was indeed Paul Samuelson, um, 
had told his parents at some point that uh, coffee futures were going to go up. And so Larry Summers, his parents, bought some coffee futures. And uh, when indeed they did go up, based on the signals that Paul Samuelson had been reporting, um, the Summers family sold the futures, took the profit, and built a new wing on the house, which was always known as the coffee wing when uh, Larry Summers was growing up. One of the questions I want to ask you is, in terms of your research about these different systems that commodities corporations are using, was it based on uh, momentum? What what type of system were they using to get these returns or beat the market in a sense? You know, it was a variety of things. I mean, it just as I mean, I think chart following and sort of signal following has always been. Um, quite a mishmash of, of different approaches, which is why it's sometimes difficult to tell if it's really working or not. Um, but in the case of Commodities Corporation, there was some momentum following. Uh, there was also um, some fundamentals following. I think Bruce Kavanagh, for example, um, who made a lot of money on, on currency trades, uh, was effectively working on the idea of uh, what's known as covered interest parity in economics, where um, if the if if the interest rates on two different currencies um, are, are are differentiated, you expect capital to flow into the uh, currency which is yielding the most, uh, and you can sort of anticipate moves in currencies based on that. And that's what Kavanagh did. So that was a fundamental sort of economic-driven analysis. Uh, so it was a mixture of things. Um, but, and, and frankly, also, there was a certain amount of pure uh, instinct. I mean, um, you mentioned Michael Marcus, who did incredibly well for a while, and then later blew up as a trader. Uh, I think that was, I'm not sure if there was a system there at all. Uh, one of the things your book talks about, in, in terms of a quote that I have from your book, uh, is that, you know, the Titans racked up these glorious returns, but they couldn't really explain how they did it. And one of the other interesting uh, people that I find in chapter three is Paul Tudor Jones. And, um, and I was wondering if you might be able to tell us a story from the, that eighties where he became famous for that trade. Um, um, some stories about, or research that you found on a Paul Tudor Jones. Sure. I think, you know, this idea that the, the trade has racked up, great returns, but they couldn't explain how they did it. I think there's two kinds of not being able to explain how you do it. You know, one is where you're basically lucky. Um, and I think there are definitely people out there who, you know, trade on instinct or trade on, you know, rumor or whatever it is. There's no real system. And, you know, sometimes they're lucky. Uh, so no wonder they can't explain it because there isn't a real system. Then there are people, and I think Paul Tudor Jones would be one, who do have a system, but it's sort of something they've come to intuitively. And when they try to talk about it, it's they, they're actually not very good at saying what it is they've done. And the analogy I, I use in my book, which I, I borrowed um, uh, from one of the Malcolm Gladwell books, um, is about uh, John McEnroe, the tennis player. When you asked him why his uh, forehand topspin was so effective, was it because he cocked his wrist in a certain way or, or flicked it a bit earlier than other players or, or what? You know, McEnroe couldn't tell you. So you had to film him 
and then play the film in slow motion to see exactly what he did with his wrist to understand why he was such a formidable uh, top spinner. And in the same way, Paul Tudor Jones actually hired um, uh, somebody I interviewed who, who had some skill with uh, um, computer programming. And the notion was that, you know, Paul Tudor Jones wanted to kind of bottle his own genius by having a, a smart programmer sit next to him. And every time Paul Tudor Jones put on a position, uh, you know, the, the trader, the, the programmer would say, why did you do that? Explain why you did it in this volume, why the timing and so forth. And then tried over time to translate those real-time self-explanations from Paul Tudor Jones into um, a computer system that would trade like him. But the system never made money, even though <laughs> Paul Tudor Jones did. So obviously there was something that Jones was saying that he wasn't able to explain. And in my book, I kind of you know, tease that out. I think one of the fun things about writing um, books about hedge fund traders or indeed about other investors or characters like Alan Greenspan, whose biography I, I wrote as well, um, is that you know people's explanations of themselves are sometimes not as good as the explanation you can give as an observer. Uh, and I think, um, you know, that's the fun of writing these books and also maybe of reading them. Talking about different strategies, um, the next chapter of your book, chapter four, talks a lot about sorrows. And I was wondering um, if you can expand on the th theory of reflexivity that he often talks about in his books and uh, maybe even walk us through your research on quantum fund. Sure. I mean, the, the idea of reflexivity came from Soros's uh, studies of philosophy at the London School of Economics, and in particular from the philosopher Karl Popper, who emphasized the limits to human cognition. So the idea was, you know, we think we're smart and we can make rational choices, but actually the world is so complex that we always take uh, mental shortcuts and kind of arrive at conclusions based on some partial understanding of, of reality uh, because we're just not smart enough to process the whole thing. And if you think about financial markets with so many different things that affect the, the pricing, uh, that's got to be true. We just don't have the mental bandwidth to process everything. So that led Soros to the view that what investors are really doing when they buy and sell is not so much grasping the objective valuation that should be in the market because they're not smart enough to do that. Instead, they're making shortcuts based on sort of cues from other people in the market who they respect and they're very influenced by others. And because of that, it follows that you're gonna get um, a kind of herding, a herding investment. So if if a group of smart people, you know, a few of them decide that, um, you should short the British pound. Um, that word is going to get around and other people are going to short it and it's going to drive the British pound down. And it's almost irre irrelevant whether the fundamentals made that um, you know, correct or not. The point is that um, the theory of reflexivity tells you that uh, if you start with some people who think something, um, that will be copied by others. The copying by the others will make the trade look smart. 
and then other people will see that and they will do the same thing too and that will push uh, the price uh, uh, even further and then in Soros's view you get to such a far from equilibrium pricing on something because of this herding that the whole thing will reverse and snap back and it'll be a dramatic reversal uh, to me to me it sounds a lot with a lot like you know behavioral finance behavioral economics some trend following some momentum everything sort of built into the theory of reflexivity i mean that's sort of my interpretation of what i took away from that yes i think that's exactly right and so in a way soros was arriving at something um that you know behavioral financiers would be or behavioral finance professors would be emphasizing um you know around the mid to late 1980s i think that's when um the the key behavioral finance stuff was was being published um but soros had come up with these ideas in the 70s about a decade earlier and one of the things you know soros is made famous for is that you know the trade that people say broke the bank of england can you tell us the backstory um based on your research about that specific trade well, Soros was always very interested in policymakers and central banks, and sort of getting into the mind of of uh, of policymakers. Uh, and so, one of the things um, that he looked for is where currencies were hugely out of whack. And he'd made a killing uh, in 1985 uh, by predicting that the dollar would fall. He just thought the dollar in the early Reagan period had gotten way too high. And he didn't quite know what the trigger would be, but he thought that, you know, this was one of these reflexive trades where people who were long dollars had made money. And so more people had piled into the trade and that had been sort of a, a self-confirming prophecy. So he bet that the dollar would reverse. With the Plaza record in 1985, uh, policymakers decided to push the dollar down and that gave the trigger that Soros had been waiting for. And he made an absolute ton of money uh, on that trade. Uh, and so when he saw uh, Sterling um, being part of the European exchange rate mechanism, which is sort of the early version of the Euro in 1992, uh, and therefore being tied, uh, the, the British pound was basically tied to the anchor currency in that system, which was the Deutschmark. Uh, he decided that this would be unsustainable when Britain went into recession uh, because the need for an economy in recession is to have a cheap currency so you can export more, make more money. Uh, uh, and uh, if you want to keep your currency artificially high, you have to raise interest rates to attract capital. And that's super painful uh, if everybody is already suffering in a recession to raise interest rates is precisely the opposite of what you ought to be doing in terms of managing your domestic economic cycle. So Soros basically took the view that um, when Britain went into recession, it wouldn't be able to uh, sustain the high interest rates and strong currency that membership of the European exchange rate mechanism demanded. And so he, he put that trade on, he was short sterling and uh, Stan Druckenmiller who was working for Soros, but in a way was more important than Soros on some of these calls um, was very much part of it. 
and they had um, a uh, analyst in London called Scott Besant, who subsequently has become a famous trader in his own right. Uh, and um, between these characters, um, they they constructed this short position. And when they were right, sterling broke out of the exchange rate mechanism, uh, fell 15% overnight, uh, and uh, Soros made a billion dollars. And, and do you think the that specific trade was uh, was using a strategy of a, you know theory of theory of reflexivity, or was it some type of other instinct? Because I read other thoughts about Soros in terms of his trade, where you know he may talk about the theory of reflexivity, reflexivity, but when it comes to the actual trade, it might be more of an instinct. And I just want to get your thought on that specific trade. Yeah. I think that reflexivity does genuinely explain some of Soros's successes, but it doesn't explain that particular one. So in the case of the Bank of England, um, you know, the key analysis was more a kind of macroeconomic uh, analysis that, look, you know, nobody wants to raise interest rates when they're in a recession. And then it was a political judgment about would the British central bank um, put Britain through the pain of high interest rates um, in order to stay in the exchange rate mechanism. And he basically made the political judgment that um, Britain's uh, elected government wouldn't do that to the British people and would basically tell the central bank to give up. And that the only way out of that uh, would be if Germany decided to cut its interest rates to take the pressure off sterling and enable the British government to cut interest rates too. But again, making a judgment on the politics of uh, Germany, uh, Soros took the view that the Bundesbank would never cut interest rates just to please Britain. It was far too um, austere and committed to orthodox anti-inflation policies. And so I don't think that's anything to do with reflexivity. I think it's everything to do with Soros's appreciation for the politics of central banks. One of the other things I wanted to talk about is in terms of risk. Which traders or which strategies um, do you say reduced a lot of the risk uh, or how do they reduce a lot of these risks? Because these trades could have gone the opposite way as well. Um, so I was interested in hearing about risk reduction or risk mitigation with uh, regard to these types of trades. Yes, I think a key idea here is asymmetry. Um, you know, traders are always looking for situations where if they are wrong, uh, they're going to lose, you know, half a percent or one percent. But if they are right, the payout could be a 15 percent move. And so the Bank of England trade that Soros did in 1992 is a great example. Uh, the, you know, the British currency was in this exchange rate uh, mechanism, uh, which sort of controlled the price within a narrow band. Um, sterling was not going to rise in value um, because, um, you know, the Bank of England wanted to be have as cheap of a currency as it could get away with, given the rules of the exchange rate mechanism. And it was already on the floor of the permitted band in the exchange rate mechanism. So the risk to Soros of being short sterling was almost nothing because there was really no way you could conceive that um, the 
British currency was going to rise. So if he was right, he could make 15% when it busted out of the band. And if he was wrong, the currency would be kind of flat and nothing would happen. And that pattern of asymmetry in payout comes up again and again in my book, where you see uh, traders spotting that, whether it's Paul Tudor Jones um, betting on uh, the markets collapsing after the Lehman Brothers bust. You know, his, his, his logic was either the Fed and the Treasury stabilize the financial system, in which case after Lehman goes down, you know, things will kind of carry on stable in a straight line. Or the Fed and the Treasury fail to stabilize things, markets collapse, in which case you can make a lot of money by being short. So if you're short, it's like heads I win, tails I don't lose anything. And that asymmetry is super attractive. I mean, that seems very interesting and especially... Um... You know, there's the Kelly criterion. I don't know if any of the um, traders that you talked to had used the the Kelly formula for risk reduction. I don't think so. I, I do remember reading about the Kelly uh, criteria and and the sort of the casino origins of all that. Um, as I remember, there's a great book called The Predictors, uh, which describes all that. But um, uh, and by the way, to your listeners, this is, as you know, uh, uh, 10 years ago that I published my book on hedge funds. So I'm, I'm a little hazy on some of the details, <laughs> but I, 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 but I, 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 I don't think the traders, um, that I wrote about used that formula. I think it was more this idea of, you know, looking for, for asymmetry. Got it. And I know we talked a lot about these household names, if you're in the finance industry like you know paul tudor jones george soros what are some other names or stories from your book of um, interesting people or interesting traders i should say that the listeners may not know about but they were fantastic traders well um there was a great story uh i remember about um one of the guys who, who worked for um tiger the um, Julian Robertson hedge fund, uh, who uh, did an incredible trade involving Russian precious metals, um, where um, he got interested in in this um, palladium, this is a rare precious metal palladium mine, and it also had to do with nickel. Uh, and based on um, expectations that the Soviet era infrastructure of the mine was going to collapse and essentially the roof would call it close, close in. He thought there was going to be a shortage of all these precious metals and that would uh, spike the price up globally. You needed palladium and various things like cell phones and so forth. Um, and uh, so this got him down a line of thinking where he became close to all these dodgy Russian metal traders. And um, when the Soviet or the Russian um, markets collapsed in 1998 um, as part of the emerging markets crisis. Um, the The Russian government was absolutely desperate for money, and they had a lot of stocks of um, palladium and nickel in the central bank and in the other government departments. And so, through some sort of middleman, uh, the the guy from Tiger um, 
negotiated to buy up all these Russian precious metals and sort of corner the market. And it was a terrific story involving, you know, strange meetings with spooky characters on various bridges in southeastern Europe, uh, like some sort of spy movie. Um, and in the end of the day, they had the whole deal lined up. The, uh, this one hedge fund in New York, Tiger Hedge Fund, was going to buy the entire government Russian stock of precious, uh, of, of non-gold precious metals. And uh, the final terms of the deal came through. Uh, and the Russians explained that they were going to send two contracts, one with the commission and one without. And so the Americans said, what do you mean, commission? And they said, yeah, yeah, you have to transfer the commission to a bank account in Cyprus. And um, the Americans who had to run all this through lawyers and be upstanding and worry about SEC inspections and so forth said, no, listen, there's one contract. We can sign one contract, only one contract, you know, we can't do all this stuff about Cyprus. So the Russians said, oh, sure, we understand, not Cyprus. Okay, no problem. How about a bank account in uh, Cayman Islands? And they say, no, 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 not Cayman Islands. And they go back and forth until finally the Russians understand that they actually cannot pay a commission. Uh, and the whole deal <laughs> fell through. It's a very interesting story. Uh, one of the things I just want to go back, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the tiger. And I, sorry, I didn't cover it earlier, but Maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, Julian Roberts and Tiger and how maybe today um, or, or recently they were seeding capital to, um, I guess, Tiger Cubs. Um, so maybe you could walk us through some stories or your research about the Tiger. Yeah, I mean, Tiger is a fantastic story, partly because the character who founded it, Julian Robertson, is sort of a larger than life uh, kind of um, booming guy who hired all these athletes to work for him and they would go on these crazy retreats in the, uh, you know, out west in the mountains and, you know, prove their machismo to each other by, you know, bungee jumping off uh, ravines and that kind of stuff. Uh, so just as a character, he was pretty special. But he's also intellectually interesting because um, if you want to sort of think about the theory of market efficiency, which you alluded to before in the context of Paul Samuelson. Um, what ought to be the hardest way of making money in markets is sort of like the obvious thing of choosing good stocks to buy. I mean, that's what uh, tons of people in the markets are trying to do. So that should be the hardest to make money from. Surely that part of the market is efficient. And yet, uh, Tiger, simply by stock picking long and short, made consistent money um, for about 18 years from 1980 to 1998. Um, and although it went wrong at the end and finally closed down in the year 2000, um, it was an amazing record for 18 years, proving that I think stock picking uh, really does work. Um, and uh, to double check this theory, um, I looked at the whole uh, sort of universe of hedge funds that have been that have kind of spun out of Tiger, often had received seed money from Julian Robertson, and they were known as Tiger Cubs, as as you say. So they often had a a kind of founder who had worked directly for Tiger, and then this founder had gone off with some money from Tiger and started a separate investment shop. And when you look at the performance of these Tiger Cubs. Um, and you compare them to other long short equity hedge funds, uh, the Tiger Cubs on the data I had um, 
were outperforming. And even if you go right up to the present day, um, and this relates to the book I'm writing now about venture capital, uh, you know, there's a, a, a an important um, venture fund called Tiger Global, which um, does sort of late stage venture deals around the world. And they also were seeded by uh, Jude and Robertson, hence the name Tiger uh, in the title of the venture fund. And they are a super important part of uh, the history of venture capital in the last um, 15 years or so. Uh, so I think this really does show how investment skill exists, how it does create alpha, and how it can be transferred by one founder who teaches it to the younger investors who work for him. So let me ask you one thought about this. Can, can that type of skill be taught? Because, for example, we talked about previously Paul Tudor Jones, who had a programmer sitting next to him trying to capture what he was doing. So I guess the question is, you know, is this nature or nurture in terms of this type of skill? You know, that's a great question. I think there are some um, uh, hedge fund investment processes which are very skilled based and very transferable. Um, so long, short equity stock picking, picking is an example where basically you have to do great analysis on companies, you have to be a great investigator, you have to go the extra mile to really discover if there's something fishy about a company that means you should short it. For example, you know, Tiger at one point got some kind of tip that there was a Korean car manufacturer uh, which was shipping a new uh, car that was unreliable, they were told. So they um, got a, they hired a good mechanic, bought two of these cars, had the mechanic take the engines apart and inspect them all to figure if there was indeed a problem. And when they did find the mechanical problem, they shorted the stock and that paid off. So it's, it's really, you know, getting off your backside, doing the extra work it takes to find the good um, stocks to be either long or short. On the other hand, there are other things like macro investing where there's so much information out there, you can't analyze everything to death. This is where the George Soros stuff about imperfect cognition is really true. And so a lot of the skill is in sort of risk management, knowing how big to bet, knowing when to bet. And Stan uh, Druckermiller, who ran um, the quantum fund for George Soros for a long time, you know, made this very wise observation to me where he said, the thing about George Soros is not so much that he's right directionally about the market more than anybody else. It's that he knows when to bet big and when to bet small. Like when he's got big conviction about something, he really, really goes for it. Um, and that was true also of Paul Tudor Jones. And I think that sort of instinct about how big to bet, when to bet, when to take your bet off the table, that's to do with sort of conquering um, destructive distortions that behavioral finance studies and sort of understanding your own reaction function and correcting it if it's, if it's unhelpful. Um, and I, so I think that's a sort of personality thing and that is harder to transfer. Got it. And I know since you have written this book, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed is even successful hedge funds have returned money. Um, one of the things they might cite is, you know, there's increased compliance. What is your thought on 
these hedge funds returning money, even successful ones, and just opening up family offices? Well, I think you have seen that. I mean, Stan Druckenmiller is somebody who features in my book and who has done that. Lewis Bacon is another example more recently. Um, so there are plenty of these. Um, but I think the thing to remember is not to make too much of it because it's part of the natural life cycle of hedge fund investors. You know, you you start out, maybe you work for somebody else at first, you start your own fund, um, perhaps somebody seeds you, then you get a track record, you raise outside capital, you grow that pool of capital um, and try and, you know, build a, um, a profitable and successful hedge fund. And then at a certain point, you've done that for long enough and you're sick of the um, requirements placed on you when you have a lot of LPs who require reporting and reassurance and who give you a hard time. And you say, heck, I've, I've made enough money myself. I'll manage my own money. I'll have a family office. I don't need outside money. And uh, that's part of a natural cycle. And I, I, I think the thing to remember is I, in my book, as I remember, at the time I was writing it, there were normally about 10,000 hedge funds in existence in any given year. But in any given year, about 1,000 would go out of business and 1,000 new ones would start up. So there's a lot of churn. It's a very Darwinian, competitive, survival of the fittest kind of system. So you wouldn't want um, long timers to stay in business forever. It's precisely the um, evolution and the adaptation um, that makes this a successful financial model. So in terms of the ones that that stay on, um, are those the ones that raise the most amount of money, the assets under management, or the ones that tend to be very successful with their trading, making money for the investors? Because you see new ones coming, they may be, have f fantastic track record, but they don't have enough assets under management. But you see these larger firms with higher assets under management, but they, they may not have, um, you know, as a successful trades recently, but they st still uh, keeps collecting um, funds from investors. My sense is that um, the last thing you mentioned doesn't go on for all that long. I might be wrong, but my sense is that uh, results in hedge fund land are reported pretty transparently, right? These are public markets. We're not talking about venture capital investments, which are genuinely opaque because you're, you have private stakes and how you value those is as much art as science. Um, so people don't really know how well a hedge, uh, how well a venture capital fund is doing for like 10 years on after it's um, raised the money because that's when you get the exits and the, and the liquidity. Uh, whereas in hedge funds, you know, you can report every month or every quarter. I mean, it's very clear whether you're doing well or badly. Uh, and so I think if a hedge fund does badly for more than a year or two, it does tend to experience withdrawals unless it has a very good story about why people should hang on. Uh, and um, so I, I, I think I think there is kind of, you know, this is why hedge funds are basically um, an impressive sector is that, you know, poor returns cause withdrawals and money is reallocated to people have good returns. It's not a perfect system, but I think it's pretty efficient at people at keeping people honest.
Got it. And I know that you have done a lot of research uh, for that book. So let me ask you this, you know, if you had enough money, um, where would you put your money in terms of which hedge fund manager would you put that money with and why? I think um, the trick is when you're allocating to hedge funds, first of all, you do need quite a lot of money because you shouldn't be you know, investing all of your uh, assets in hedge funds. Um, you know, this should be part of a diversified portfolio. And the better hedge funds uh, tend to want um, a pretty large allocation. Otherwise, they don't want to bother with you. Um, so I think it's really a strategy that's not in reach of most people, right? It's, it's really, you have to be a very high net worth individual or you have to be uh, an institution like an endowment. Um, you know, a, I suppose a family office is in between being an institution and a high net worth individual, uh, you know, a pension fund and so forth. So I think the first thing to be said is it's, it's really not a strategy that most, most people can use. But if you do have that sort of scale of resources, then I think the way to identify the good players is by being willing to take a bit of risk on um, emerging managers. I, I think there's some decent research saying that if you um, catch the managers, uh, you know, before their funds have gotten too big, um, they tend to be more agile in the way they move in and out of positions and have better performance. If you think about it, once a fund has grown large, um, there are certain opportunities that might make a good percentage return, but there isn't enough capacity in those opportunities uh, to actually put enough money to work to move the needle for a bigger fund. So if you're talking about a long short equity fund, you know, if the fund is worth, you know, 10 billion, it won't bother with a small cap stock that might be very inefficiently priced because you can't actually, there isn't enough float to put enough money to work in it. So then you're restricted to taking positions in larger stocks and those tend to be better priced and the inefficiencies are less and so you make less money. So I think having the nerve to not demand a long, long track record from an investor, but backing emerging um, uh, hedge fund investors, but then backing quite a few so you get diversification is the way to do it. Kat, I know you had mentioned um, emerging managers. So let's say, you know, today, if someone was interested in starting a hedge fund, um, just based on your research, w would you recommend somebody, if they wanted to start a hedge fund, they, they do it today based on uh, the new legislation that passed after 2008. I, I just want to get your thoughts on um, what should somebody do who who, who may have a, a, a very good track record. I think if you've got um, a, a strong conviction that you have um, an edge uh, in the market, that you, you know how to earn alpha by one technique or another, and as we know, there are many different ways of doing that, um, I sometimes joke that hedge funds should have been called edge funds uh, because that's what you need to have. You need to have some sort of edge. So if you've got that um, and it's the kind of edge where, you know, it can be driven to 
a reasonable scale so it won't be tapped out when you're at like you know 50 million dollars but you can drive the scale of your fund large enough that you can meet those compliance costs that were put in place as a result of the OA crisis uh, then it's a great thing to do and you know so long as you've got quantitative easing out there i believe it makes it harder to generate big returns in hedge funds because if you think about it hedge funds are essentially their job is to price risk and if risk spreads have been compressed because of quantitative easing then you're being paid less to take those risks and that's unfortunate uh, but i i think kind of long term um you know for a talented investor this is by far the best way to to operate. This is much better aligned than working for, um, you know, a mutual fund or some other uh, type of asset management where you're basically being paid to amass capital, not for performance. Got it. And I you know I really want to thank you for your time today, but. Um, you know, what's the best way for, you know, someone to reach out to you and find out about your new book, the venture capital book, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the venture capital book and when is it coming out and, um, and just a little more information on that. Sure. Um, well, the new book, um, is really an attempt to repeat more money than God, uh, my history of hedge funds, but this time, instead of being a history of hedge funds it's a history of venture capital. But essentially, the structure is is a similar one where, you know, I write about the um, founding father of venture capital uh, in the first chapter of the book. And then I tell the story right up to the present day uh, with, you know, the unicorns and Uber and WeWork and all that fun stuff. And I show over time how the principles in venture investing have both evolved and become more sophisticated uh, but also in some ways have remained true to the original vision. And I think that's the same as with hedge funds. You know, it, it's evolved, but the original idea that you should be free to be both long and short, that you should um, be free to use leverage, that you should use a performance fee so that you're aligned with your LPs, all these things sort of, there's a kind of a playbook that's also true of venture capital from the 1960s right through to the present day. Uh, and, you know, it's venture capital is an extraordinary world where, you know, um, I remember Jude and Robertson and hedge fund space saying that if Tiger um, could make a, 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 take a position in the stock market that tripled its value in, in two years, you know, that was absolutely the gold standard that he aspired to. Um, in venture capital, you get uh, positions that don't make three times your money, they make 300 times your money. I mean, just astronomical returns on, on the home run bets. And in many ways, you know, um, hedge funds are accused of uh, sometimes ignoring tail risk and betting as though um, the middle of the distribution um, in the bell curve sort of way uh, is what they should be banking on. And that, of course, is the critique by uh, Nassim Taleb and, and so on, uh, the kind of black swans critique of hedge funds. But what's funny about venture capital is that they only care about the tails. They just ignore the um, median outcome because in venture capital, median isn't terribly good. The average startup doesn't do terribly well. 
but it's those tails in the right-hand tail that break out and do really, really well and return 300 times your money. That's, that's the whole game. So it's this strange form of investing, which is totally unlike uh, every other kind of finance you can think of, which makes it intellectually fascinating. And of course, there's also a great cast of characters uh, to write about. And does your book go into the ideas on how to find those right tails? those uh, ones that have of course i mean just like with hedge funds the fun of my book was to describe um the different ways that you can generate alpha uh, whether it's through event-driven strategies or long short equity or systematic trading with computers or event you know uh, distress trades or what have you um equally in venture capital the fun is to explain the different ways in which um, investors have, have, have successfully extracted enormous profits from the markets. Got it. And when is this book coming out? And uh, do you have a title or are you just... Um, well, I, I know it'll come out next year. For me, that's the late stage because I do research these books very carefully. I spent four years researching my uh, hedge fund book because you know that's how long it took me to actually go meet with all of the famous people that I was writing about, and I pretty much met with 100% of them. Um, in the same way, I've wanted to do the research on venture capital in, in, a, in a deeper way than anybody else had before. I, th I think there's no point writing yet another book. There's you know millions of books out there. So if you're going to write one, you need to do a good one, and that means taking time. So I've already been working on this book on venture capital, uh, since 2016, when my last book came out. And so if it comes out in 2021, which I think it will, that will be a five-year project. I think that's about right. If if I want people to spend the time to read my books, I need to put a hell of a lot more time into writing them. Got it. Well, thank you, Sebastian, for taking your time today. Sure. Really Great to be with you. It. Thank you.